Hello and welcome to Micromaterialism, the show where we break down a material science topic into a bite-sized episode. This episode, we interviewed Brian Minnell, the CEO of TechMet, and he outlined the important work that TechMet is doing to invest in the mining, cultivation, and production of technology metals. These are things like vanadium, cobalt, nickel, things that are going to be critical to the development and the shift towards electric vehicles, renewable technologies, and what are some of the challenges that are going to be facing us as we try to make this transition. I think it was a really great interview, and I can't wait for you all to hear it. Okay, we're delighted today to be joined by Brian Manel, the CEO of TechMet. Brian, thanks for joining us. Great, great pleasure to be with you. Brian, can you tell us a little bit about what TechMet is and the service that you guys provide? I'm sure TechMet is a private company in which we're building um, projects that produce or process or recycle what we call technology metals. So essentially the ingredients of the energy transition. Um, so we're a, we're we're a, we're a holding you know we're an investment company. So we build controlling or dominant minority positions in private projects and private companies in our metals and in our technologies. How is that different from other mining or metals companies that might have come before? Our focus is firstly we're different in the sense that we're investing across the middle portion of the value pipeline for these strategic materials. So we're probably about a third mining, a third processing, and a third recycling. We're not a mining company, we're a technology metals company. Um, and then we're relatively unique in terms of the basket of metals and metal chemicals that we invest in the capacity to produce and process and recycle. So we're focused exclusively on lithium, cobalt, rare earth metals, tin, tungsten, and vanadium and nickel, where we see the greatest demand supply dislocation as you know, the electric vehicle, renewable energy um, systems continue to accelerate globally. I see. Yeah, we have a faculty in our department who specializes titanium. We had a speaker from their company spinoff come and chat with us. So I was a little bit surprised to not see that listed there. What are there other metals that are energy critical that you haven't addressed? And is there reasons for that? Um, we don't, for instance, do graphite, which is obviously a very important constituent of lithium ion batteries. The reason is not because it's not important and interesting, it's just because we don't have um, the level of insights and understanding into the dynamics of the markets and the pricing and the technical specifications of graphite um, to the extent we do for our other metals. So it's just not an area of expertise or comfort from a market dynamic point of view, um, as, it, as is the case for our other metals. Um, you know, there are many other metals that are part of the energy transition equation that we don't do, but what we do do are the major um, metal chemicals going into renewable energy systems, lithium-ion batteries, electric vehicles that are in structural short supply and that are controlled largely by the Chinese. Yeah. Going along that route, what are some of the challenges of securing relationships or also securing investments and opportunities in these spaces? Um, a lot of our metals are the production is dominated by diverse emerging markets, orange sources of origin. Um, a lot of our metals, the production is dominated by small and medium scale projects in relatively weak hands in any instances. 
So to successfully engage in our space, you need a lot of diverse experience and network across a lot of jurisdictions, a lot of type of geologies, a lot of type of technologies and processes. So it's fairly unusual to have the breadth of experience and capacity and hence deal flow pipeline um, uh, uh, as we have in TechMap. So Brian, when I got started in understanding materials, criticality and scarcity, it was almost 10 years ago. We wrote a paper where in, in the field that I was working at the time, it was thermoelectrics and everyone just was chasing the figure of merit. Like how, how efficient can you make these things operate? And nobody seemed to care that the materials that they were using at the time were things like tellurium, right? I think it's like the ninth rarest element on the planet, right? It's a byproduct of copper. We already sort of have optimized our mining for copper. We're never going to change that process to optimize for tellurium recovery. It's always going to be an expensive metal, right? And so at the time, I remember thinking like, this is sort of a non-starter. You're never going to be able to replace, even if these things were efficient, you're never going to replace every fridge in you know the world with a bismuth telluride-based thermoelectric because this criticality issue. And it's it was interesting in the early days to talk to my fellow material scientists and, and sort of be the, the canary in the coal mine and say like, hey, materials criticality is maybe as important as the material performance. Uh, what's your take on materials criticality and the, the critical materials that are out there? Yeah, it's massively underappreciated by the markets and massively underappreciated by the end users of our certainly battery metals, uh, being the OEMs and, and other people rolling out electric vehicle, um, you know, systems and, and, and units. Um, if you just look at the electric vehicle revolution, if in 10 years time, 30, 40, 50% of passenger vehicles are lithium ion battery driven electric vehicles, which is highly likely to be the case, and maybe it'll be 80 or 90% once you get a tipping point, um, which we're very rapidly approaching. Um, that means that we need you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 times the present global annual supply of nickel, of cobalt, of lithium, and of rare earths for permanent magnets and electric motors. That is a massive challenge. It's a challenge that requires an utter reinvention of our industry. It requires hundreds of billions of dollars of capital to be deployed over the next five years. And it requires an industry that not only scales massively beyond anything that's been accomplished in history in terms of volumes, but also reinvents itself in terms of ESG um, credentials and independent verification and carbon footprint. You know, it's no good producing an electric vehicle to mitigate climate change if the stuff going into the electric vehicle, you know, is all, you know, processed in China with coal-fired driven electricity and very energy uh, intensive uh, processes. So, you know, we the, the challenge from a, a battery metal chemicals point of view is massive um, and they're going to have to have prices that are considerably higher than the present prices to drive those sources of supply to meet the exponential growth and demand and it's going to require 500 tech mets in order to do that successfully so we're at the cusp of a massive dislocation that is a, a fascinating and exciting challenge for us because that's what we're doing but it's, it's really a daunting challenge for the world if we're going to have a successful energy transition. Yeah, something that we have covered in the past on this show are other sort of linchpin moments when it comes to how materials have transformed society. And I think that we're at one with renewable energy technology. We realize that this is something that has to occur. And now what we're realizing is that there has to be a technological increase to go along with it. So, for example, take cobalt, right? Uh, one of my former students published a paper recently looking at uh, estimates of cobalt usage in, in vehicle batteries, right? And 
in not in the not too far distant future, I could pull the paper up and check the date. Is a few decades away. We will be using more than our current supplies allow, right? So the only way that we're going to meet that uh, would be, without secondary recycling would be finding new sources. So I'm curious where you come down on this. Are we going to massively increase our primary sources, or are we going to ramp up secondary, you know, recycling? And if so, what are the challenges in that area? Well, it has to be both. You know, recycling has a very important role to play. But in our view, in 10 years' time, if the lithium-ion battery recycling industry is fully optimized and develops to the extent it needs to, and we've been part of that through our funding of Lifecycle, now listed in New York, which has got a great technology and rolling out very quickly recycling capacity in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world, um, it, it maybe in 10 years' time, 25% of battery metals for new lithium-ion battery manufacturing will come out of this optimized recycling industry. And that's great. It's a big contribution that displaces some of the reliance on Chinese controlled pipelines of supply, and it puts volume back and value back into the system. However, you know, the 75% that we're still reliant on for new cobalt and new nickel and new lithium is going to require multiples of the present global sources of, of, of mining and, and, and processing. Um, and that's a big challenge to do that at all, let alone to do it with high ESG and low carbon footprint. Yeah, I mean, where are we going to find that? And, you know, I think people are shocked when they learn about cobalt as an example, right? Where it comes from and the conditions where it gets mined in. It's a it's a, it's a very conflicted mineral, right? So are there new places that you're exploring or is this going to continue to come primarily from the DRC and elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, if you look at cobalt, I mean, cobalt, we're going to need multiples of present global annual supply even with the successful thrifting of cobalt in favor of nickel or other metals in the, you know, in the cathodes of lithium-ion batteries as they continue to evolve and be optimized. Um, the, co co the DRC accounts for about 70% of global cobalt supply today, more in fact, um, and China accounts for probably 85% of all cobalt processing right. into intermediate metal chemicals for battery manufacturing. You know, that's a massive geopolitical issue and it's a massive supply chain risk issue given the nature of the Congo. Um, I, I think there's a misunderstanding. I mean, firstly, you know, with higher cobalt prices, you'll get more cobalt resources becoming payable and you'll get more both as a byproduct of copper and nickel, which dominate cobalt supply and the few, but nonetheless in existence, primary cobalt resources, which become more and more viable as prices go up, which they have to, to incentivize supply. Um, so the Congo will still be a dominant producer, but it won't, it'll be somewhat less dominant as prices increase and non-Congo resources become payable. Um, and, and the Congo, the nature of the Congo is, you know, it's got a problematic history. It's a complicated country. A significant proportion of Congo's, Congolese production does come from artisanal right. sources which are ill-regulated from a child labor and environmental point right. of view. But it's a small portion. I don't know what the number is, but it's probably like 20% of Congolese production. 80% come from big mines run by big mining companies, which are generally reasonably well-governed. So I don't think we should assume that cobalt is a problematic, dirty, conflict metal because the bulk of it comes from the Congo, because the bulk of what comes from the Congo is regular mines run by regular mining companies in a regular manner. And, and mining can be well governed from an environmental impact point of view and a social and political impact point of view. And in many instances, it is even in the Congo, which is a tough environment to do that. Do you, 
So it's going to be a mix. We're going to do better as an industry. We're going to do the Congo better and we're going to do more elsewhere in the cobalt. Will rising prices help or make that worse, do you think? It, it makes it worse in the sense that more artisanals go and dig up kind of old dumps and, and primary resources in the Congo. It makes it better in the sense that there's more money to do the big mines properly yeah. in a well-governed manner and there's more incentive to develop new resources in a well-governed and, and, and regular manner. So it's, it's pluses and minuses. Yeah, kind of along the same route. You mentioned that there are issues just along the whole supply chain of um, certain metals and certain processes being in what you refer to as unsafe hands. When we're trying to focus and shift our attention to producing metals in a way that's environmentally sustainable, how do you ensure that across all of these different um, industries that are involved in the supply chain are they're all conforming to various environmental standards? I think a lot of the drivers for that will come from the consumer facing users of these metals. So when Tesla, GM, VW and others um, come to realize that they're going to be increasingly judged on the ESG credentials and carbon footprint of their supply pipeline, they'll start to impose those standards on that pipeline and ensure that the metals going into their batteries and electric vehicles come from well-governed, transparent, and independently verified chains of production and processing. Um, and that's going to be the answer. You know, in, in tandem with that, obviously you have government regulations, which can to some extent and to an extent is, is, is that is evolving in the EU to, to regulate um, the sources and governance associated with imports into EU industry or, or, or US industry, et cetera. So it needs to be a combination between the, the driver by end users in terms of standards they require of their supply pipeline and government regulations with respect to import um, restrictions and standards. So. And, and, and source of capital. Increasingly, if you want to build a mine in the Congo and you want to fund it with big ESG or impact or energy transition funds who will increasingly look at our space, they're going to require, as do we. I mean, we're one of our biggest shareholders is the United States International Development Finance Corporation in DC. And as a US government funding agency, they require us to abide by a whole range of ESG and governance standards and report on it and be independently assessed on them. And that's great. So our capital forces us to do what we want to do anyway, but it's another level of, of, of verification of what Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And getting ready for this interview, I was reading about that, and I was unaware of any other instance where the sort of federal government invested in that way. Because you hear about SBIR grants and SCTR, these sort of small-scale investments where they're really grants. They're not buying a, uh, they're not taking ownership in a company in this way. Is, is this the first time that's happened? Yeah. It's the first time, and the first time, and in fact, I believe we're the only metals and mining company ever in history to have direct US government funding agency equity investment. So we are unusual in that sense. Hopefully, we're not the last. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when we did a previous episode on steel, you know, I think I think a lot of people don't realize this, but when steel in the early days in England, when they were starting to figure out the steel making process, it too was financially such a large cost to get these giant smelters up and running that it was beyond the, the pale of any one investor. And this was the birth of the first publicly owned, you know, company where they they said let's pool our resources and then extract you know benefit from this company it had never been done before and so it's cool to see that now we have a, a new iteration of this you know groundbreaking process of 
of investing in large scale operations and what could be larger than, you know, the metals that are going to go into our energy technology? It's very, very important precedent that the DFC as a US government agency set, and hopefully one that they will build on and we can build on to have much more active engagement in the space on the part of, of US government agencies, because without US government as a leader in this you know, uh, energy transition globally engaging in the materials going into the energy transition, we'll either fail to produce them with the correct governance and on the scale that's necessary, or we'll continue to have an energy transition totally beholden to China over the next 5, 10, 20 years, which would be a major geopolitical and national security and national competitiveness. Well, issue. let's talk about China for a minute. In the early days when we were doing our analysis, we pointed out, uh, we used a metric called the Hirschfeld-Hirschman Index. Um, it basically, it measures, it's a measure of monopoly and where things come from, whether that's a country or an entity or whatever else. And we were pointing out, it, maybe it's not a good idea for the community and the thermoelectrics community to focus so much on minerals that are highly concentrated in their production. And some of the early feedback we got was, well, you know, you shouldn't be so jingoistic. You shouldn't be xenophobic. Nicely said, right? But that was the idea. Um, do you get similar pushback, you know, is China just a convenient boogeyman in some ways? Or is there something to this that is not, you know, based off of, you know, a discriminatory approach, but rather sound business practice? Well, yeah, I mean, firstly, China's done a spectacularly successful job over the last 15 years in securing this dominant position um, over the supply pipelines of these key energy transition metals and metal chemicals. And they've done that in a way that's not all negative. They've added a lot of investment and a lot of scalability to an industry that the world needs. Um, and, and we can't have a successful energy transition without cooperation and partnership with China. They're too big and important a player in some of the technologies, some of the manufacturing capacity and some of the materials. So I'm not proposing an anti-China position. I'm proposing a position where the West and US aligned interests need to balance China's dominant position. They've been allowed to win a war that nobody knew they yeah. were fighting until they lost it. And the position they now have is really unhealthy and detrimental for the US and US allies and their interests and for industrial competitiveness. And I think ultimately for China, because it's a red flag that will um, yeah. increase uh, conflict and polarization on the global stage. So, you know, it, it's an absolute pressing, urgent, requirement to do more um, to diversify and balance these supply chains, even though China's made a massive contribution and will continue to. So you mentioned collaboration. How do you navigate these sorts of relationships when you're trying to establish or invest in companies in a space that China's already been competing in? I know they have extensive mining operations in Africa for some of these technology metals. How do you negotiate um, the sort of, I guess, like political ramifications of going into these spaces that they are existing uh, producers in and competing? Yeah, I mean, all the producing countries that we're engaged in are very keen to have alternate investors that aren't Chinese to balance the Chinese dominant position. So be it the Congo, be it Angola, be it Rwanda, where we've got tin and tungsten mines, you know, everybody wants alternatives. Um, from an end user point of view, again, you know, there's enormous support for channels of supply that are not beholden to or controlled by China from a risk management point of view. So, you know, there's a lot of support for a company like ours investing without Chinese investment, without Chinese partnerships in China's space, because they do dominate a lot of these industries. 
Um, so we don't, as tech medicine, we're a private company, you know, growing rapidly, but not anything like the size of a lot of Chinese enterprises. You know, we can compete without having to collaborate or cooperate, even though in some cases it's very difficult not to sell material to the Chinese because they have such an overwhelmingly dominant position with respect to processing capacity and technologies. Nonetheless, we're involved in trying again to remedy that by building capacity in the US and, and Europe and elsewhere in the world. Um, so, you know, we can coexist and grow. There's a lot of space. Yeah. I think a good example of this, I remember it was 20, 2008 maybe, uh, but there was the, there was the export, um, they put tariffs, but they're not tariffs, they put uh, restrictions on the exports with rare earth minerals. And you saw a subsequent spike in the price of these rare earth elements, right? Um, it went to the World Trade you know, organization where there was a dispute over this and it wasn't resolved for several years. But I remember thinking at the time, man, had you been a new technology company that was relying on these metals at that time, it would have completely obliterated your ability to do business. And so I think that the world overall would benefit from stability in the markets and additional players is certainly going to help do that as opposed to a single entity. Exactly. It's urgent and unnecessary. All right. Well, one question I think that our average listener doesn't realize is just how much mining and metal processing goes into these energy technologies. Give us a, you mentioned a little bit already, but help us understand the scale of the problem that we're facing if we're going to move away from fossil energy, for example, internal combustion engines, uh, coal-fired power plants. What sort of scale are we looking at in terms of extracting new mineral resources? Yeah, I mean, our base case forecasts. You know, if we take the eight or nine million electric vehicles in the world today and assume that in 10 years time, there's only 100 million, which is almost inconceivably pessimistic. It assumes that there's massive global recession, massive global um, recharging infrastructure issues and grid capacity issues. So everything goes wrong. So it's only 100 million. But even going from eight or nine to 100, in, in our models, you need three times the present global annual supply of cobalt, five times the present annual global supply of lithium, and 12 times the present annual global supply of nickel. And that's gonna be exceeded radically. You know, if that 100 is 150 or 200 or 250, which is more likely, you know, it, it's epic, you know, what we have to do with our industry to scale production. So it's really beyond anything I think we have seen for any category of natural, of natural resource since the impact of the Industrial Revolution in the late 18th, early 19th century um, on, on coal and iron ore. You know, it really is once in several hundred years dislocation. So I, you know, we just can't overestimate the scale of this challenge and opportunity. So what does that mean for, you know, many of our listeners, I think, are material science students or early career professionals, perhaps. What does that mean for them? What does the future look like in terms of what will material scientists be doing? Uh, I think that mining, I, would, I don't want to say it's a dead technology, but it's certainly been dormant. I think for a while, if you go to these meetings, uh, the heavy metal processing ones, it's been a little bit dormant, I think. In, you know, there's been a lot of research in the technologies that use these metals, and I don't think there's been as this surge of research in developing the technologies for extracting or processing metals themselves. So what does that mean for future generations, in your opinion? No, it means that there's going to be, you know, the opportunities to work in and engage and innovate, particularly in the processing of, of battery metal chemicals and other strategic metals going into electric motors and circuit boards, etc., are enormous. So if you just take one example, direct lithium extraction from brines, both cold brines and geothermal hot brines, 
is a fascinating area of innovation and will and has to be a big part of the uh, the global growth of lithium supply story over the next two, five, 10 years. Um, so that requires and is getting an increasingly funding and attention um, you know, to, to develop innovative processes without evaporation ponds and all associated environmental issues to directly extract lithium and lithium chemicals from these brines. So, and, and that area of necessary process engineering, metallurgical innovation, you know, is duplicated with nickel to get grade one nickel as opposed to ferro-nickel out of um, fairly scarce and, 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 and limited payable nickel resources like the nickel laterites we're developing in Brazil. Um, requires a lot of innovation. That's what we're doing. We've developed a scalable, low environmental impact, low carbon footprint heat bleach process for extracting nickel and cobalt chemicals from this particular type of nickel laterite resource in Brazil. And we need a lot more of that. So innovation in processing um, is going to be a key driver of the success of the energy transition because it's going to facilitate the recovery and processes of resources on a bigger and bigger scale to meet demand. Yeah. I, I really hope that the U.S. plays a, a leading role in this. Right, looking around right now at the material science and first off, metallurgy departments have all but gone the way of the dinosaur. Most of them have merged with material science and metallurgy programs. Even metallurgy degrees are becoming quite scarce. There's only a handful of schools offering them. And I sort of see this problem coming where I wonder where we're going to train the engineers that we need to do this enormous amount of work. No, it's a massive challenge, and particularly in the U.S., which, as you say, has somewhat um given up on metals and mining over the last 50 years um, and really has to reinvent the capacity to be major players on the global stage both at home and abroad you know because the answer is not domestic part of the answer is domestic but a lot of the yeah. answer is u.s interest or u.s aligned interest developing processing in africa and south america etc um, and as you say i mean you know the people the expertise the capacity is very un underdeveloped and has lapsed considerably, you know, but, but, but with United Kingdom, with Canada, with Australia and like-minded allies, um, you know, a lot can still be done while yeah. America reinvents itself from a metallurgy and mining. Well, point one of view. tiny point of optimism, our department is one of the few that still has a strong mineral processing, extractive metallurgy background, and we're hiring right now. So if you're out there listening and you want to work in this area, we're hiring in this area, Andrew. Yeah, so you mentioned the importance of education. So is that another point of investment for TechMet? Or are there any partners that you partner with to try to promote the education or the cultivation of individuals with these necessary skills? That's a good point. Because <laughs> if you're looking for a place to um, put a fellowship, we'd be happy to have a TechMet yeah. fellowship in our department. No, we certainly, we haven't done a lot up till now, but we're very, very keen to because it's a key area to assist and support the industry to do what it needs to do over the coming years and decades. So we, we do a bit, and we do a bit in collaboration on the on the technological develop, you know, technology development front with a number of universities. And we have, so we have some relationships. But in terms of meaningfully supporting education to feed our industry, we'd like to do and need to do a lot more, as does everybody else in our industry and government. Okay. Well, what what response would you have to a skeptic who says, you know, even if even if you know we we decide that we want to go after these new metals and new sources. Um, looking at places like the U.S. Geological Survey, where they do estimates on where you can find these things, they just don't think it's out there. 
Um, what response do you have to concerns about the limited primary supply, even if we were to go out after and try and find these things? Um, it's very variable across our metals. I mean, there's no particularly concerning limitation in primary source resources of lithium. You know, you've got very scalable brine-based lithium resources in Chile, Argentina, and Peru. You've got a lot of hard rock spodumene-based resources in Australia and, and Africa and elsewhere. Its issue is the technologies, the economic, the environmental impact, and the um, funding capacity to develop them in the time frame that's necessary to meet exponential growth and demand. So I, in my view, you know, production and supply will successively lag demand over the next two, five and 10 years, but not because you don't have a lot of lithium in the world, because you don't have the right people spending the right money with the right okay. technologies to produce the right intermediate products to go into battery manufacturing. Um, obviously, you've got something like tin, something like cobalt, something like nickel to an extent, which is much more geologically constrained in terms of primary resource and therefore requires significantly higher prices to incentivize development of lower grade resources and that the market's going to have to sort out. But again, it's going to sort out with a time lag because these projects take a long time to fund and develop and demand is growing quicker than that time frame. Uh, for new production allows. So again, that's going to be a major constraint on the efficient um, rollout of the energy transition and the EV industry. Well, Brian, I got to say, this has been a real pleasure. Uh, it's not every day I get to talk to somebody who cares about materials, criticality and scarcity. Uh, so it's fun to talk to somebody who knows a lot about this. I learned a lot in this interview today. Um, it was certainly a pleasure to chat with you. Where can our listeners go to learn more about your company, your technologies? Um, we're a private company, so we there's, you know we don't um, spend a lot of time telling people about ourselves, um, but we do have a website, techmet.ie, um, which is the domain for Ireland where we are domiciled, um, where, where, you know, which summarizes our company's our strategy and who we are. Um, and you know, we're busy adding to our portfolio in a number of key areas, both in the US and elsewhere, so there'll be quite a lot of new news and, 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 and interesting developments coming out with respect to our existing projects that we're busy scaling and, and, and new projects we're adding to our portfolio. So hopefully there'll be um, you know, more exposure as we continue to grow. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, well, we enjoyed the chat with you today. We wish you all the luck going forward. I hope to be using your medals in all the things around us in the near future. Okay. Excellent. Well, thanks. Thanks very much. It was great to have a chance right, to we'll chat. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Brilliant. Keep on. Today's episode is obviously sponsored by TechMet. And in addition to the awesome conversation that we've had with Brian, you can check out their website, TechMet, that's T-E-C-H-M-E-T dot I-E, and the link is obviously in the show notes. Check it out and you can learn all about the different metals that they support, some of the companies that they're involved with. It has more information on some of their media where there's been articles written about their company. I think you're going to like it. Check it out, TechMet dot I-E. The Materials and Podcast is also sponsored by MatMatch and Materials Today from Elsevier. They're both fantastic companies and do some great work. Definitely go check them out. And if you haven't told a former teacher, think back to the best high school teacher you knew. If you want them to possibly start teaching material science and make it a lot easier for them to do so, 
think about directing them to the website teachmaterialscience.org. One word, teachmaterialscience.org, where they can sign up for a free kit which has some awesome demo materials, and it's the perfect way to start teaching young minds about material science. Now, lastly, special thanks to the people that make this show possible. We're very grateful to the people that help make music. That's Colabyte and Alphabot. And as always, we would love it if you would leave us a review. We would love it if you'd reach out and chat with us on Instagram, send us an email, all the above. That would be really great. Okay. Yeah, we get lonely in the shed. <laughs> but just do me, do me a favor. If you're going to leave us a review, don't give Jared a big head, man. He already thinks he's the bee's knees. Alrighty. Catch you next time.